And it's so cool. I talked about it this morning. It's like, you know, if we're not careful in the body of Christ, we begin to see each other for what we can do for each other rather than for being a brother and a sister in Christ. And it's so refreshing when love has no hook. When you're not carefully chewing what's being offered because you're afraid of what you might find. When you can just eat and enjoy and know that there's no hook coming. It's just love for love's sake. It's refreshing. Uh, it's encouraging. Um, and, and, and everything you said, we, we, we agree. Me, Patty and I were talking where it's like, it's so crazy. You meet a group of people, Jeff and, and Dustin and Steve and Gabe and Billy. And we just, man, it was like, it was like family. And so um, Jesus is amazing. He's amazing. And, and, and the longer I live, the more I realize I, I don't know how amazing he is, but I know he's more amazing than I thought. And I had this, it was a little while ago, and I don't share this stuff very often, um, but I, I feel like I can share it here. I had a vision. I, I don't know if I was sleeping. I don't know if I was awake. And um, I was in a crowded city scene, and I was just wandering along, and there's just people bustling around. There's a crowd around me, and there's there's buildings everywhere, and then all of a sudden, everything goes blank, and it's like this arid desert scene, like just rolling desert hills, and <clears throat> I'm looking out, and I see someone way off in the distance, and so I'm drawn to walk in that direction, and I begin to walk, and as I get closer, I begin to see that it's a man, and he's standing with his back almost to me. I can kind of see that maybe his face is a little bit turned towards me. And I start to get closer, and I realize it's him. It's, it's Jesus. And I get closer, and the first thing I notice is that he's wearing this robe that is like changing colors, I thought. And it's going from like this deep purple to almost white, and it's shining. But as I got closer and closer, I realized it wasn't so much that it was just changing colors. It, it was pulsing on him. It was, it, he, he has so much power that fabric can't touch him without it being ignited with power. And it's surging. And I'm getting closer and I'm starting to get a little freaked out. And I see he's got, he's got hair that look like crystal. And he's got his face, I can't see it, I, I, but I'm walking towards him. And as I get closer, I see that robe just surging with power. And... I said, oh my gosh, and he laughed, and he said, Roy, who do you think I am? And I said, I thought I knew, I had no idea. And all I could say was, I thought I knew, I had no idea, over and over and over again, and the closer I got to him, the more I saw, it was like just power that was waiting to be released it was just waiting to be pointed and directed. It was surging within him. And I just kept saying, I thought I knew. I had no idea. But in an instant, things began to make sense. In an instant, it made sense that a woman who grabbed and touched that robe was healed the second she grabbed a hold of it. In an instant, it, it made sense that when he spoke, the sun roared forth and began to shine. 
That when he told the oceans, you can only come this far, they, said, they obeyed him and they lined up. That when he hung the stars and said, you will shine here for this long, the stars had no choice but to do exactly what the breath of his word said. It, it made so much sense to me. Things that shouldn't make sense began to make sense because I was staring at the one who that the very fabric touching his body was surging and pulsating with power. And I, I came to my senses sitting up in bed saying, I thought I knew. I had no idea. I thought I knew. I had no idea. And that's the Jesus that we serve, and that's the Jesus who is the firstborn of many brethren. He's the Jesus who said those that claim the name of Christ ought to in this life walk as he walked. He's the one in John 14 that said that if you don't believe in my words, at least believe on account of the miracles. And I tell you the truth, he that believes in me, the things I do, he'll do, and greater things because I go to the Father. And suddenly I'm like, of course we would. Why wouldn't we? It's like if, 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 I, if, if he's in me and I'm in him and, and, and the spirit that, that gave him life is actually living inside of me, of course I'll do the things that he would do. And I began to think about that, and I thought, <clears throat> you know, we always take that to the, to the place of healing and, and prophetic words and, and dead raising and stuff like that, and that's super valid, and that is all 100% legitimate and part of what he was saying. But, but I thought about, like, what about, what about Jesus on the night that he was betrayed? Bending down and washing the feet of the betrayer. The things I do, you'll do. It says Satan had already entered into the heart of Judas. Jesus knows this. He's looking at this man and he knows for 30 pieces of silver he's going to sell me to be killed. And his response is to wash his feet. It's the reason that Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Because if I'm alive for me, I don't wash the feet of the man who's going to betray me. I give him a piece of my mind, and I maybe don't even go to the cross for him. But Jesus was never alive for himself. It was settled in his heart. He went into the garden, and he knows what's being asked of him. What's being asked of him is the, the greatest thing that would ever be asked of anybody. He's going to allow the sin of the world to be placed upon him. He's going to allow them to beat him for our transgressions and wound him for our infirmity, and he's going to be mocked and scorned and spat upon and his beard ripped out. He's going to have people punch him in the face and then look at him and say, oh, you're a prophet? Why don't you prophesy? Who hit you? Deserving not one ounce of it. And if he's alive for himself, he never makes it to the cross. If he gives himself the right that we sometimes give ourselves, he doesn't make it to the cross. If he's alive for him, 
He turns it into, after everything I've done, how dare they? Come on, we've said that before. After everything I've done, this is the thanks I get. We've allowed ourselves to have that language because we've allowed ourselves to have those rights and to, to have an expectation that people respond. Jesus tried to deal with that real early with the disciples. He said, listen to me. What good is it if you love only those who love you in return? Don't even the, the, the tax collectors do this. Don't even the Gentiles. Don't even the ones who don't know God as Father do this. But I tell you, love your enemies. And bless those who curse you. And would spitefully use you. And yet we've allowed ourselves to be in a place where we let what people do to us matter than what he did for us. We've allowed ourselves to be offended and wounded when he was wounded for us so that we never had to be. This is the power of that gospel that I realized in an instant when I was looking at him and I saw the power that surged through his body and I realized that same power lives inside of me. But if that power isn't great enough to keep my heart, why would it be good enough to change the heart of another? If it can't keep my heart in a place of love, and impurity, if it can't keep my heart in a place of wanting to be like him to the point that I can look at somebody who would mistreat me and understand if they knew who they were, they would never do what they're doing. And it's not just for Jesus. It's not just for Jesus to look out at the crowd that has hatred in their hearts and murder in their eyes and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing because there was a man named Stephen and he, he's a man full of power, and he's, he's walking around performing miracles, and he's full of the Holy Spirit. And he gets these the Pharisees, and they come to him, and they start accusing him, and they make accusation against him. And all he does is just open the gospel up to them. And he tells them over and over again why Jesus came and, and what they did. And they just gnash their teeth, and they have such hatred in their hearts that they want to kill him. And all he's done is love them. All he's done is heal their sick. All he's done is preach the gospel. All he's done is love them. And they have hatred in their hearts. And they've got stones in their hands. And Stephen looks at them. And he doesn't say, that's some kind of thanks for everything I've done. He doesn't say, after everything I did for you, I can't believe that you're thinking about doing that. He says, Father, don't hold this sin against them. What's he saying? Father, in this moment right now, I care more about their eternal soul than I do my temporary life. That's what the gospel says. It's not some cheap thing. It's not some say a prayer and then God makes everything perfect and you go about a life of, of rainbows and butterflies. There's hard things that we face in life. But we understand that this momentary light affliction is working in me an eternal weight of glory. And I count these current minor afflictions as nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing him. Paul was convinced he was convinced that there was something greater than what he could find on this earth that he was living his life for. But you know the crazy thing about it is this. They're getting ready to stone Stephen. And Stephen looks up into heaven. He sees Jesus standing. Jesus is supposed to be sitting. I think Jesus can't help himself when somebody displays the heart of love to people. 
And he looks and he says, he got it. It wasn't wasted. And he says, into your hand I commend my, I commend my spirit. And he says, Father, don't hold them sins against them. And then they kill him. But there was a man there watching. There was a man there who was the Pharisee that gave his approval to the stoning. It was a man named Saul. And I believe when you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when Paul is talking about love and he says, love doesn't seek after its own and doesn't consider a wrong suffered, but hopes all things and believes all things. I believe it's because he watched a man look into the eyes of those who hate him and not seek after his own life and not love his own life unto death and not consider a wrong suffered and hope and believe all things in that moment. And I believe in that moment, Stephen became a living epistle of what love looks like for the man who would go on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. So now if we take the things that we've allowed to let us have a response that's less than Stephen's and we hold it up to the light of what was done to him, how petty does it look? We can't even take a name being called to us that we don't think we deserve. Never mind a stone. Jesus doesn't give himself that right. Why would we give ourselves it? Like, I'm just talking straight because I, I feel like there's, there's times, and I'm not this church because I know Jeff's heart, I know Billy's heart, I know Dustin's, I, I know the heart of the pastors in this church, but I am saying, like, there's this danger that we've made the gospel all about what I can get in this life rather than what he can receive for eternity. There's a danger in, in, in this thing being where we are, the jury is out and God's goodness is on trial in the court of our circumstances and we've been arrogant enough to allow ourselves to find him guilty. And we've said things like, well, if God's so loving, then how come? And all we're doing is, is letting everybody around us know that what matters more is what people do or don't do rather than what matters most, and that's what Jesus did. See, that issue should be settled once and for all for those who have given their life to Jesus, that he is love, that he is good, and then we filter our circumstances through the lens of his love rather than the jury being out and deciding whether or not he's good based on the things we experience in our day-to-day -day lives. I'm telling you, there, there's this thing where, where we give ourselves rights to say things that would sound so ridiculous coming from the mouth of Jesus. It, it, think about this. Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist, and immediately the heavens open and the skies uh, um, apart and a voice booms from heaven and it says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God descends down in a form like a dove, and, and immediately Jesus gets led into the wilderness, and the very next voice that he hears is the voice of the enemy saying, what? If you are the Son of God. He comes to test the word. And it says Jesus was tempted in all ways that were common to man, yet without sin. And then he comes and he tries to tempt Jesus, and he tempts him three different times, and Jesus defeats him three different times. And you know what I love about that as a side note is that Jesus is the word of God, yet he uses the written word of God to defeat the enemy. 
If the word used the written word to defeat the enemy, there's probably a good chance that when we find ourselves being tempted by the enemy, the written word in our mouth would probably be an appropriate response. But you have to know it was written in order to say it is written. Because Jesus said that the Spirit of God, when he comes, he will bring into your remembrance all these things that I said to you. Well, you have to actually know them in order to remember that you know them. Don't get so hung up chasing the next prophetic word when you've got a book full of written words over your life that you're supposed to live by. I mentioned that this morning, but I'm telling you, listen, don't, don't, don't ever let think that you have a prophetic word and that somehow the prophetic word over your life trumps the written word of God over your life. David gets anointed king. He has the greatest prophetic word given over him that any human being up to that point has ever been given besides Jesus. And he says, and then the next thing he does after he gets anointed king and gets told, you are God's chosen man to lead his people. You're anointed to be the king. The very next thing that happens is his dad tells him, go out and watch the sheep. And then a little while later, his dad says, go and serve your brothers. And what does he do? He takes that spoken word over his life. He lets that thing stay in his heart. And then he takes the written word that says, honor your father, and he lets that be what shapes his obedience. And he finds himself in the place to fight the giant because he was obedient to the written word, and he didn't sacrifice it on the altar of a spoken word. I'm all for prophetic words. I'm just saying that if your prophetic word is keeping you from obedience to the written word, it's not a prophetic word, or you didn't receive it right, one or the other. One or the other. I'm t- I told you, I love you. I don't even know you. <laughs> Let's talk about David for a second, and then we'll get back to Jesus, and then we're going to pray. Because it always has to come back to Jesus. Always. Every message I preach is the same. I've, I, I've got like 48 flavors of ice cream, but they all are real similar. <laughs> it's the truth. It's all about understanding Jesus and seeing Jesus and knowing who he is and believing what he said and believing that we have a father that loves us and believing that the spirit of God actually lives and dwells inside of us and that he's made us a new creation capable of living the life he calls us to live. That he's not a frustrating father who asks us to do things that are impossible. He's a, a good father that actually is more interested in you doing what he calls you to do than you are interested in it. It was his idea to begin with. You're not trying to get him on board with your prophetic word. You come in line with what his heart is for you. And then you'll see that the yoke is easy and the burden's light. Sometimes we feel like it's not easy and light. It's because we're actually fighting against heaven. Because we have an idea. This is the danger of living in a cheap prophetic culture. A cheap prophetic culture is just one that wings words out there nonstop, constantly, without any accountability and without any worry about character and integrity. And you live in that kind of a culture, and here's what will happen. You get this prophetic word, and then you get another prophetic word, and then you start thinking, how can I make these prophetic words happen? And you start making your own way. The problem is this, is that if you make your way, you have to keep your way. And you know how you got there, so you're worried about somebody else getting there the same way. And now you've got to defend what you have. If you would humble yourself and let God put you there, you would never worry about another man. Because if God put you there, only God can take you from there. There's a peace that comes when I sleep at night because I know I am where I am by the grace of God. That's what Paul was talking about. He said, "Who I, what I am, I am by the grace of God. In other words, I can't take credit for it, so I don't have to defend it. I have to defend the things that are mine. I don't have to defend the things that are his. His the defender. He watches over his word to keep it and to perform it. And he's faithful and he's true. He'll finish everything that he started. 
So David, David ends up in a place to fight the giant because he was obedient and honored his father when his father said, go serve your brothers. So many people think that if I could fight Goliath, I'd fight Goliath. Yeah, but the problem is, is that when your dad told you to go watch the sheep, you didn't do what he asked. So you didn't fight the lion and the bear. And so you actually didn't have what you needed when it came time to fight the giant. If you would have been faithful to your dad and you would have gone and done the little things that nobody could see. Everybody wants to be on stage with a microphone in front of their face. How many people will watch the kids in the preschool and act like that's more important than being on stage because nobody else is there to talk to them and everybody's wanting to do this? That's how I got started in ministry. The man that got me started in ministry was a genius. His name's Brad Stahl. He's on, on staff at Gateway Church. He's the best leader I've ever met. And he took me and Patty out to lunch, and, and he said, you've got a call of God on your life, and everybody does, but you've got a special one, and it's leadership, and people will follow you, and I want to invest in that, and I want to pour into that. And he was on staff as the children's pastor at this church, and I thought, oh, man, he's going to make me assistant children's pastor, and I'm going to learn from this dude, and I'm going to be with him all the time, and it's going to be amazing. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, I really want to pour into that and invest into that because you have something in you I want to see developed, and it's an amazing calling, and you're going to be a leader. I was like, sweet, that sounds good. And I really, you know, I had a genuine heart. I wanted to serve God, but also had ideas of what that serving God would look like. It's okay to have ideas as long as the ideas aren't something that keeps you from doing what he called you to do when what he calls you to doesn't look like the idea. He doesn't mind your cute little dream. He just doesn't want that to be the, 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 the measuring stick for whether or not you'll be obedient when what he calls you to looks nothing like your cute little dream. And so I'm like, we're in. Patty, we were engaged at the time, right? Or were we just dating? We were engaged, yeah. And um, this, is my, this is my amazing wife, Patty, right here. Yeah. Let's stand up real quick. Stand up. Yes, stand up. Stand up. I told you guys this morning, if you were at the first service, that he who finds a wife finds a good thing, and I found a very good thing. Yeah, I did. And... Um, so Patty and I were like, yeah, we'll do that. And he's like, awesome. I, what I would love is for you guys to serve in the nursery one Sunday a month. Okay. No, the truth is, is my dream bubble got popped. But I cared more about following and honoring the Lord than I did my dream. And so I served in the nursery as though it was important because it was. And then I took another step and we started teaching in children's church and then we took over the classroom in children's church and then eventually we were over the whole area of children's church and then eventually I was the assistant children's pastor and when he left, he recommended I take over as children's pastor. I became the children's pastor, then the youth pastor and then the college and career pastor, but I never did any of them to get to the next thing. I never did any of them as a stepping stone, thinking if I do this, the next thing will be that. I did what God asked me to do in front of me, and I did it as though it was the most important thing I'd ever been asked to do, because the truth of the matter is, at that moment, it was the most important thing I'd ever been asked to do. And I learned this then. If you're faithful with little, you'll be ruler over much, but, but, but to be faithful with little, you probably don't consider it little. You probably consider it much. And it's only when you look back that you see that that was a little thing compared to the greater thing he's called you to.
But if your eyes are fixed on the greater thing and you have no time for the little thing, you'll spend your life chasing great things, never doing little things, and then get to the end of your life and never do great things either. And so David is where he is because he's faithful to do the little things like serve his brother's lunch. He walks onto the scene. He hears the, the challenge of the giant. And this is the thing that he understands. And you can hear it in his language. Because he calls Goliath over and over again, uncircumcised. What's he saying? This man that has no covenant with the God of the universe is threatening the people of the God of the universe. Why hasn't anyone gone and handled it yet? That's what he's wondering. And so he says... I'll fight him. But here's what happens. You would think everybody standing around would be stoked that finally someone has stepped forward that says they'll take on the giant. You know what the response is? The response is that people around him who are familiar with him look at him and say, oh, what are you doing? Why are you here? I know why you're here. And what have you done with those few sheep? They want to belittle him. They want to make him realize you're a shepherd, not a fighter. Why? Because if, he, if they dared to do what he did, they would have already done it. And the last thing someone who thinks something can't be done wants to see you do is the thing that they feel like they can't do. I promise you, well-meaning Christian people who have said something is impossible will turn into the biggest uh, negative detractors in your life when you step forward and say, I'll do it. Why? Because they don't want you to do it because then they have to ask themselves why they didn't. And so, so they're comfortable under the grip of slavery of the Philistines. The truth of the matter is, is they didn't have to lose the battle to become the Philistines' slaves. They already were owned by the Philistines because their bravery only lasted until he... This, this is what they would do. Think about how hilarious this is. The, the armies of the Israelites would gather on one side. The armies of the Philistines would gather on the other side. They would put on their battle array, their best, this is my Sunday best, their Sunday best, it is, black shirts, it's because I sweat, and they would, they would get dressed up, and then they would scream this battle cry that was supposed to intimidate and terrify the enemy, but the second a giant walked into the valley, the battle cry left their lips. Fear came into their hearts, and they turned and they ran. You can imagine how the enemy was emboldened when the people of God could only scream a battle cry as long as there wasn't a giant in the valley. Thankfully, that doesn't happen today. Because you can imagine if people were to gather and get dressed up and scream battle cries only to turn and run when a giant walked into the valley, how it might embolden the enemy. David doesn't care. All he cares about, he asks a few questions. You know what they are? What will be given to the man who kills Goliath? That's all he cares about. Why? He's not worried. If you read the story, read 1 Samuel chapter 17, you'll see that there are people who know how big his spear is, how much his shield weighs. 
how tall he is, how big his armor bearer is. They know all about the enemy. David knows nothing about the enemy and cares nothing about the enemy because he knows about God. And so they bring him to Saul's camp and he tells Saul, you got a picture, this is a 14-year-old shepherd kid. He says, don't let any of your men's hearts fail with fear. For the Lord your God delivered the lion and the bear into my hands. Surely he will deliver the head of this uncircumcised Philistine into my hands also. This little kid walks in and says, listen, just relax. Don't let anybody freak out. God's done some things in the past that give me confidence that this is going to be just like one of those. I'll go kill him. And look what Saul does. Saul says, you can't. I'm telling you, just because their chair is in the tent of God doesn't mean everything that comes from their mouth is from the heart of the throne. And just because they have a title doesn't mean they have your best interest or his best interest. So you better weigh the words that are spoke to you, not the status of the person that spoke them. So David looks at him and he says, oh no, I can do this. And so here's what Saul does. First, he can't talk him out of doing it. So then he says, well, if you're going to do it, take my armor. Why? Well, there's a chance you may do it and I want to attach myself to you. I want a little bit of the credit when you do that thing. So why don't you take my armor? Because if you kill him, it might as well be with my sword. It might as well be with my armor. I'm telling you. And he says, David puts him on, and he puts the sword on, and he tries to walk, and he can't even move. And you know, the truth of the matter is, is there's probably right now a bunch of Davids running around with Saul's armor on trying to fight battles with, with weapons that they haven't proven because they look up to the person more than they look up to the man Jesus. They're walking around with another man's armor on that they haven't tested. And they're wondering why they can't move and the enemy's having a field day with them. And David says, I can't. I haven't tested this. He says, I'm going down there with the things that I trust. I'm going down there with the things that have proven themselves. I'm going down there with the things that I learned that when I was on the backside of a hill when you didn't see me, King. Because there was a time when nobody else was around that I looked after some sheep. And I knew that it was my responsibility to look after the sheep. So when a lion came and took it, I didn't just protect the 99. I left the 99. I went after the one. I killed the lion and I came back. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. Because when, when one of the lambs gets attacked by a lion, he doesn't just circle up the 99 and say a prayer for the one. He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one and he kills the lion and he brings the one back. And when a bear comes, he does the same thing to the bear. And so he says, you know what? Everything that I need, I already had when I walked into your tent. The truth of the matter is, is if that sword was capable of killing Goliath, Saul would have already gone down and killed him had nothing to do with the sword, it had everything to do with the covenant and the man that understood it. Here's an amazing thing. I remember when God showed me this. You ever get revelation and you just start stomping around? 
My wife hears me sometimes. I, I, we have a sauna at our house down in our basement, and I get that thing up to like 190 degrees, and I go down there and I meet with the Lord, naked and unashamed, <laughs> sweating like crazy. And here's the thing. There's nothing special about that sauna except for this. I expect to meet God there, and he meets my expectation every time. It has nothing to do with the place. It has everything to do with his heart and the fact that I have history in that place. And when I walk in there and I smell that smell, I start getting those same old feelings again. And I see that wood and bench and I see that bucket and that water and I know what's about to happen. And he never lets me down. Why? Because he has way more to pour out than he has people to pour out on. There's no lack. He's just looking for people whose hearts are fully his. And so I remember when he showed me this, I was in the sound and I was praying about this message and I was talking about this stuff to him. And, and he said to me, he said, go look at how Saul died. The very sword he tried to get David to trust to kill the giant was the very sword that Saul had thrust into him that ended his life. There was a man, Jesus, who once said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. If you live by that sword, Saul, you'll die by that sword, Saul. Go look at how David died. David died when God ended his life and took him home. Why? Because what he lived by is what he died by. And so David says, listen, O king, I can't, I can't do this. And so he grabs... Five stones, you guys have probably heard 50 messages about five stones. You're not going to hear 51. But he goes running down to the battle. And he kills the giant. And he cuts the giant's head off with the giant's own sword. And he drags, holds that head up. And when he holds the head of the giant up, the army of the Philistines are suddenly capable of doing what they weren't capable of doing before the head of the giant was held up. And they pursue the army of the Philistines and they overtake them and they kill them all. Because one person trusted God and one person had the courage to do what any of them could have done. They all had covenant with God. They all could have went into the valley and killed the giant if they simply believed it. You don't need a greater anointing. You need to believe that the anointing of Jesus that's upon you is enough for what he's called you to. How much more anointed could you get than having the spirit of God live inside of you and dwell upon you? The same spirit that raised him from the dead now lives and dwells inside of you. Jesus, the anointed one, said that, that I, he's in us and we're in him. You've been anointed. You just need to actually believe that the anointing is great enough for anything he calls you to. And here's what I love. I love that for about three days, David drags the head of the giant along with him everywhere he goes. Listen, the Bible's not boring. You're boring. Like, if, if, if you think the Bible's boring, read it. Eat it. Read it to know him. Don't read it to win an argument or prove a point. Read it to know the God of the universe, the living God. Well, when you read these stories, think about it. Don't let it just be another story to you. Don't skip to the part you're trying to get to that reinforces your belief and bypass the things that make you wonder. 
He takes that head with him. A few days later, he goes to see Saul, and he's still got it with him. Why? Because there's probably still some Israelites that haven't seen that the giant no longer has a head. There's probably some people in your life that haven't seen that the giant's head has been cut off and they're waiting for you to show them. So Jesus goes into the garden. I told I leave these little breadcrumb trails so I can get back to where I was. Jesus goes into the garden with the greatest calling on his life, with, with the thing that, that, that is the most that's ever been asked of anybody. And, and this, this is the thing that I can't understand about people that say that, that we don't have free will, is that Jesus says to the Father in his humanity, Father, if there's any other way, then let this cup pass from before me. But nevertheless, not my, not my will, your will be done. This I can assure you, if Jesus had to bend his will to the will of the Father, we'll have to bend ours to his. And here, once Jesus settles that, there's nothing that can be done to him that will make him change his mind because he's not in it for himself. And then Revelation tells us that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and by loving our own lives, not unto death. Meaning what? There's nothing anybody can do to us, including death, that will change us from being like him. Because we are committed to this thing, that he's worthy of it all, and we will never let sin against us reproduce itself and produce sin inside of us. That's the gospel of Jesus that makes us untouchable and makes your heart untouchable. And it puts you in a place where you're not a robot. You're not an emotionally shut down, disconnected person. You love and you care, but you don't love your own life. So nothing that anybody can do to you would ever be taken in a way that would cause you to be less than loving. I've already decided it. You're going to get loved. My only thing I'm trying to figure out is what does love look like in the moment, not are you worthy of being loved. So they, 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 they put him on a cross. How, how much time do we have? <laughs> I'm taking that. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm to close with this. I want to I show you this. This is something Jesus showed me, or God showed me out of Colossians. We preach it all the time when we take communion. It would be good for us to be mindful of this. When they, when they crucified Jesus, they nailed him to the cross. And they don't normally nail people to crosses when they crucify him, right? They, they, they tie him with rope. And the thing that kills you isn't bleeding to death. The thing that kills you is that you can't breathe anymore and eventually you suffocate because the weight of your own body becomes too much for you to lift and breathe. That's why they would break their legs if they were taking too long. So they could not push up and use their legs to push themselves up and breathe anymore. It's an excruciating way to die. But with Jesus, they want to be extra cruel. Why? They're trying to get him to think for himself. And they're trying to get him to back down. See, they don't even know what they're doing. It says if they knew what they were doing, they never would have done what they did. They're trying to be extra cruel to him, so they nail him to the cross, and they have no clue what they're doing. But in Colossians, it tells us what they were doing. 
You know what it says in Colossians? It says the record which was formerly against you, which was hostile, was nailed to the cross with Jesus. I started meditating on that. That's why when you read the word and you read something like that, don't just read, oh, the record that was hostile against you was nailed to the cross. You think about that and ask him to show you what it means and give you revelation. It's not in there so the Bible can be one sentence longer. It's in there because there's something he wants you to know because it will encourage your heart and it will make you more like him and it will put you in a place where you can actually live what he's called you to live. And there's so many Christians that are bothered by things they should not be bothered by. And it's because his people are perishing because of a lack of knowledge or because they've rejected the knowledge when it's come. In Hosea 4.6, I quote so many scriptures and I just, because you know why? Because whatever's in you will come out. So you put that word inside of you and you start talking and all of a sudden you remember this scripture, which reminds you of that scripture, which reminds you of that scripture. Pretty soon you've said more scripture in one message than if you would have sat up here and just read the Bible almost. And so, so they take him and they nail him to the cross and they don't know what they're doing, but, but here's what's happening. It says that record that was hostile against you was nailed to the cross with Christ. So just picture this for a second. Just picture everything that you ever did wrong. Every accusation that could ever be made against you. The things you did, the things you're yet to do. And when the enemy wanted to have his way with you, he'd just open up that scroll and start accusing Now picture that thing being taken, folded up, being put right behind Jesus' hand. And then you picture a nail being put on his palm and being pounded through his palm, through the paper, and into the wooden cross. What do you think is starting to happen? Blood's starting to flow, and it's starting to saturate that paper. And suddenly, blood flows enough to the point where it saturates the paper, and it begins to drip to the ground. And drop by drop, it carries every accusation that was ever made that was hostile against you to the ground. And the blood of Jesus forever silences the blood of Abel that cries out. And mercy triumphs over judgment. And it wipes and washes and blots and erases the record that was hostile against you to the point where when the enemy wants to come and accuse you and he opens that scroll up once it's been covered and saturated, there's nothing there but the blood of Jesus Christ speaking a better word. They didn't know what they were doing or they never would have done it. But here's the thing, and I I will close with this. (laughs) But here's the thing. So what's the last thing that he hears said to him? If you are the son of God. His whole life. The enemy knew this one thing. If I can get him to doubt who he is, I can get him to act like who he's not. Your whole life, the enemy has set it up so that if he can get you to doubt who you are, he can get you to act like who you're not. So when you read that word, you believe that word, not for others, but for you. You believe that you are. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And such we are. Don't you know that you are holy? Oh, listen, he says, he says, anyone who destroys the temple, God will destroy him. For his temple is holy. And that is what you are. He says he's able to present you before him, blameless, upright, holy, beyond reproach. That means what? That you're perfect? No, that means that he presents you before the Father robed in his perfection. And if he sees you that way, it would do you good to see yourself that way so you won't get caught up in looking inward, finding what's wrong. You'll look upward and see what's right. And then if your eye is single, your whole body will be flooded with light. 
Not a little bit of darkness mixed with some light. For what does light have to do with darkness or what does Baal have to do with Christ? Come on, nothing. There's not two wolves. I said this earlier. There's not two wolves inside of you fighting for control. If you're born again, the two wolves were killed by the one lion who now lives inside of you. And here's a little secret. He wants to come out. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray for two different groups of people. The first group of people are people who have been hurt by others and have allowed the hurt that they've experienced by others to be the thing that dictates the way they live. And this is what it looks like. Well, I'll never trust like that again. I'll never let someone do that to me again. I'll never let this happen again. If that's what, how it ends up, then I'll never. And what you've done is you've built a wall around yourself. And that wall is probably pretty good at keeping hurt out. The problem is, is that walls don't differentiate between hurt and love. And as, as good as a, of a wall as it is to keeping hurt out, it's just as effective at keeping love out. And so you, behind that wall, you begin to shrivel up and die because you're cut, cutting yourself off from the very life source, which is the love of God. And you think you're protecting your heart and all you're doing is actually making sure that it continues to die a slow death, not touched by anyone else again. That's the first people I want to pray for. If you'd find yourself in that place where you would say, yeah, there's some places in my life where I've actually, because of the way that I've been treated, I've given myself permission to say, I'll never, I won't, and I've built walls. If that's you, we just stand up where you are. We're, we're going to pray for you and, and ask Jesus to come and tear the wall down and soften your heart. Yeah, is there anybody else? Like, yeah, just stand up right where you are. Like, there's, 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 I promise, there's no condemnation. You're walking after the spirit. You're not walking after the flesh. Don't ever let this be a con condemnation. Let this be a conviction of where you can be, not condemnation of where you're not. The gospel always calls you into something. It never points out what's, what's wrong for the sake of calling you wrong. It points out what's wrong for the sake of showing you what's right. Because his desire is that you would be in the light as he is in the light.